Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Today we shall uh, look through another book. Um, this book being called On Being Certain, uh, Believing You Are Right Even When You Are Not. And this one's by Robert Burton. Um, I'm actually, I'm intrigued by this book. Uh, very curious as having not read it, uh, not seen the end. I'm, I'm curious where we will land and what the author's message is. But I do know he talks a little bit about um, this feeling of being right and mm-hmm. what's going behind that feeling. Um, so yeah, this is interesting for me in a number of ways, whether it's like the intuition of, I know I'm right here and whether it would be helpful in questioning that, um, but being more aware of blind spots or even times where, um, maybe there's insecurities and I should be more confident that I'm right. Um, very curious to see where we go. I think uh, I will find it helpful, and I'm curious to hear how you've found it helpful as well. So shall we jump in? Oh, yeah. Great summary, by the way. Excellent. <laughs> having, apparently not having read the book, but you, or you the, the subtitle really is provocative, isn't it? I'm being certain. Yeah. Believing you're right, even when you're not. Yeah. Burton's a neuroscientist. He's a professor, uh, one of the Cal, uh, maybe Cal Berkeley. But uh, he's a wonderful writer, by the way. And so we're back to books you'll likely never read. So we'll <laughs> give you the cliff notes. I guess there's all sorts of websites to do that. And that's terrible. But anyway, uh, it's far better to learn orally from someone. And it's uh, a really yeah. good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm being certain. Why does he use this word certain? Let's just pick, let's just uh, parse out the title just a bit. And we'll give you the big idea. And we'll just take a few minutes for listeners to, well, I think um, this this is a profound book when I read it. it. It raises a host of questions. We'll never be able to cover all of them in this podcast. But I'm being certain. What's that all about? <laughs> I'm hoping you will tell me. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> um, well, you know, I so I'll tell you what I guessed it was about um, because I think this reminded me of another book that you've recommended called proper confidence. And mm-hmm. so when I first heard this, I was, uh, that's where I was wondering, Hmm, I wonder if this is about, you know, when we ought to be certain, when we ought to have a level of certainty or, um, confidence in our knowledge. Um, but then in just looking at this, uh, some excerpts from this, um, I, I think it's, it's very much gets into that. Like when you, when you know something to be certain about something, is to, to know it as a fact. I don't know. Is that anywhere? In- well, you're actually right. You pulled in another book by Leslie Newbigin yeah. called Proper Confidence. Yeah. Which we ought to talk about another time. So put that Certainly. in our, uh, put in the queue, as they say in England. Uh, no, it's actually uh, a, 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 in Proper Confidence. You're close. Uh, proper Confidence, so Leslie Newbigin points out that it, the Enlightenment was the first great quest for certainty. So this idea of being certain of something is only three, four, five hundred years old. 
Hmm. It does. Does Burton get into that in his book in terms of? Well, he does. In a, he's not a believer, um, uh, and yet he would. He he sort of comes in back through the back door. I almost call these one of these uh, books that Lewis said where, um, you know, the Bible ought to be dormant or hidden. And I think he unwittingly is coming in the back door with uh, what's uh, with uh, Christianity that's hidden because it's absolutely right. Here's his point. And then we'll pick it. We'll, uh, I'm being certain, uh, believing you're right when you are, you're not. His basic point is he's, this is brain research. This is a, your brain operates by two neural networks and they consist of inputs and outputs. But he says between these two is what he calls the hidden layer. It's our genetic predispositions as well as past experiences to make sense of data. Now, when they say our, uh, our genetic predispositions, I happen to think that fits what I've called our behavioral DNA, audience, can, will. And then our past experiences are what's called uh, uh, cultures, overlay, overlapping layers of cultures. Now, those blend together, and they produce what Burton calls the feeling of knowing. Now, we're going to cover a lot for you listeners, but hey, give us a break. It's 5.30 when we're doing these freaking things, <laughs> and you're probably listening at 2 o'clock while you're driving in traffic and just sipping a latte. So I'm not putting up any nonsense for many of you. <laughs> the feeling of knowing. Now, here's what's fascinating. He says, the feeling of knowing is neither a conscious choice nor even a thought process. It's... It's a feeling of knowing what we know that arise out of involuntary brain mechanisms that are like love, anger. They function independently of reason. And then they move us in hidden ways. Now, here's, so here's the first thing, uh, first reason that uh, I think this book is valuable. In a society that heavily biases the left hemisphere, you'll hear phrases like this. Oh, you're a feeling person, and or no, you use logic, but I, I'm more of a feeling person. Or in even the uh, what is it, the uh, ENTP? What's that called? That uh, ISFJ. Oh, Myers Briggs. Myers Briggs. Yeah. Myers Briggs. We'll say uh, you're more of a feeling, or what's the other thought? What is it? Is yeah, I guess it's T is for thinking, thinking, feeling. Uh, yeah. Yep. Thinking, feeling. I think is right. Well, this book without even picking on Mars Briggs blows that apart. In fact, that's not the case. Which is very helpful for a lot of couples who often the marriage counseling I've done is, you know, my husband, he's just he's just a thinking person, but I'm a feeling person. Or it might be advice. It might be the other way around. No, in fact we're we're all feeling people. Every one of us. It's this hidden layer that actually precedes reason, that gives us a feeling of knowing. And his point is that the stronger we feel it, the harder it is to relinquish, even in the face of overwhelming contradictory evidence. Hmm. And uh, he likens it to uh, what Amazon uses. Uh, they have a hidden layer 
that is uh, learning your taste, compiling your book purchases, everyone else's purchases, and they're building, they build this relational database that's continually adjusting according to experiences. And in fact, it's sort of guessing and projecting the unpredictable nature of your tastes. And it's pretty good about that. In the same way, your brain sort of speeds up and predicts uh, what it's going to feel about uh, someone, something that someone says, because all communication is an interruption of your attention. And so if someone says XYZ, what's going to, what the neuroimaging indicates is the feeling of what you know about that is going to precede any ra rational thought. So if you are predisposed to not like it, you're going to immediately be tainted in how you listen to that other person. This gets a little bit into uh, just bias in general, you know, bias towards an idea or even bias towards people. Yeah. Yep. That obviously in the corporate world, that's a very common conversation talking about bias and non unconscious bias and those things. That's but right. I'm assuming that's kind of where he's, he's pointing at here. Yeah, he actually cites the work of Cal Berkeley, Professor George Lakoff, and others. And they say that um, conscious thoughts are the mere tip of the iceberg, the tip of the cognitive iceberg, if you want to call it. It's, a, it's just 5% of your thinking. 95% is under the waterline. Uh, and so he says uh, cognitive thought is the tip of an enormous iceberg. And uh, so our feeling of knowing things or actually, better word, being certain of them is um, is based far more on feeling than rational thought. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of Blaise Pascal. He doesn't cite Pascal here. But Pascal said, the heart has reasons that reason knows not. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason, <laughs> the reason this is important... <laughs> <laughs> there, there are many reasons uh, this is important, but the, but the chief is, and I hadn't thought about Leslie Newbig until you mentioned him, that uh, why was the Enlightenment a quest for certainty? And, and, what's the, and what was, what's been the fallout of that? I think there are a number of things. I'm, I'm not sure which direction you're going, but you know, one of those is. I'm not either, but go ahead. <laughs> I mean, one of those is certainly the, the idea of self, but also the idea of, of self invention or, um, you know, this, I, this, it's not quite the, the, the cosmos, as you have said before, we've gone from the cosmos to the universe and the universe, the difference being the cosmos is created there's an order there's a structure we align to it but the universe is a pool of randomness and we can shape and mold and do as we please with it including all the way down to ourselves which we know there's a there's obviously a flaw to that reason um but th that's what came to mind i don't know if that's where you're going yeah um sort of kind of uh, <laughs> but not That's really. A gracious uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, maybe we'll probably end up somewhere in the suburbs. Of that. That's for sure. So when Descartes intoned, "I think, therefore I am," 
we'd be wise to pause and, and parse that out a bit. I think Descartes was saying that our, we have a rational mind that functions independently of any outside influence, and that constitutes who I am. Descartes split the mind in the body and basically said there's, there are no biological mechanisms going on that in any way influence our mind. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's what uh, Manubigan talks about in his book. It created the objective-subjective dichotomy. Familiar with that? Yeah, sure. What's that? The idea that we can have uh, objective thought and we can have subjective thought. That's right. And which one's better? Of course, objective. It's untainted. That's right. That's the point in Leslie Newbigin's book, is that we can have untainted, objective thought, free from any bodily or cultural influence. And um, that produces a, a certainty about what we know. Certainty. Now, certainty is unassailable and therein lies the problem that burden calls the unhealthy certainty of being right he puts it this way he says uh, there actually he says there's two conditions that promote this and the first is this quote when people seem to derive more pleasure from final answers than ongoing questions and want definitive one-stop shopping resolutions to complex social problems. Hmm. Now let's let's just uh, let's personalize this a bit. If uh, years ago, and and this man was actually writing what he said, but it caused quite a stir. He said, "I do believe Jesus is the way, truth, and life." my understanding of Jesus may not be entirely correct. Now that drove a lot of his friends bonkers. Why? I'm guessing they wanted to hear certainty. That's right. They were certain that they understood who Jesus was. I often we joke before, this is when I hear people reciting lines they learned when they were 18 regarding Jesus. They've never gone further. Hmm. The reason they've never gone higher, wider, deeper into what Paul said are the hidden meanings in the cross, for example, or in the gospel, is because they are Cartesian. They are a Descartes follower without knowing it. In other words, they were taught, this is what you know for certain. And it creates what he Burton calls the certainty of being right. It derives more pleasure from final answers than ongoing questions. So that's the first condition. And I saw this in spades. Uh, the uh, summer Kathy and I uh, spent in England. And of course, there's popular for the Brits to remind us, but I think they have a point that uh, Americans are, uh, the American educational system is uh, more pointed towards final answers, and the English is more pointed towards ongoing questions. Now, that's important because uh, final answers are, are delivered via lectures and ongoing questions 
are delivered via tutors. And you may or may not know that uh, uh, the famous Anglican uh, evangelist Witherspoon, when he became president of Princeton, the first thing he did was take away the whole tutorial English system and replaced it with his system, uh, which was evangelical, and it, was, and it became more of a uh, looking for final answers. It's hard to make money if you don't get those final answers, you know, when you're in, in college. And so the American educational system um, unconsciously promotes this condition. And this is what we mean by the feeling of knowing is, I went through the American educational system and I didn't know anything about this. But what Burton's point is, is it builds this, this hidden layer that fosters in you a sense of the feeling of knowing of what it produces what he calls certainty, rightness, conviction, and correctness, correctness that's always being reconfigured inside a tight box, but it's not always right. And the second condition he said that's necessary, we already talked about it, would be you know, assuming that we're fundamentally cognitive beings that can rationally sort out uh, opposing views or things that we don't agree with, uh, which can't. Um, because you're going to immediately uh, assign a value um, to it. And so, you know, a, a simple example would be, and we've talked about it before, but, uh, you know, I was led to Christ through crew, a wonderful ministry. And in the uh, four laws, toward the back, there's a little train diagram. And it shows the, uh, it's just a engine, coal car, and a caboose. Which if you think about images, that's going to have more and more trouble as years go by because more and more younger people go, what is that? <laughs> but the whole point was um, the uh, engine was called facts, the uh, coal car was called faith, and the caboose was called feelings. And the basic thrust was if you want to grow in your faith, you don't put like you don't put coal in a caboose. You don't put any faith in your feelings. You put your faith in the facts. And um, Burton's book blows up that whole thing, that that's not the way the mind works. You're putting your faith in your feelings all the time. And it's the feeling of knowing that assigns value to the facts, wherever they may be. For this reason, as a Christian, God is infinite. And there is no such thing in the Bible as certainty that you have arrived at, oh, that's what the gospel is. Oh, that's what the cross means. Oh, that's what. That's the finite mind saying, I'm now certain. Now, you can be, as Newbigin would point out, and as Burton points out, properly confident, which is another way of saying faith. But before the Enlightenment, it was assumed your entirety of your life is by faith. I mean, look around the room you're in, the room I'm in. This is entirely uh, uh, predisposed to faith. What do I mean by that? Looking at the room? Yeah, well, that was you're breathing some conditioned air right now, heat. Oh, sure. 
Sure. How do you know that heat's healthy? How do you know that? How do you right. know that the unit's operating? How do you know the floor? I'm on the second floor here in our home. How do I know this is going to hold me up? You see, you wake up in the morning, and you, as the Bible tries to say it as succinctly as possible, you don't know what your life will be tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You don't know what your life will be in five minutes. I was reading about Jeff Jones. He went to high school with my wife in Louisville. Um, and he played for the University of Virginia basketball player, and then he's been a coach. And he was out in Honolulu yesterday and had a heart attack. Now he's going to say he's going to be fine. He's put on a lot of weight, but uh, he didn't know he's going to have a heart attack. He didn't know he's going to have a heart attack a minute before he had a heart attack. Hmm. He was prob, but he was living. We would say we kind of walk around certain we know how today's going to go, or confident. Well, confidence is different. That says faith. We put our feelings in faith, which I think actually is better because love is fundamentally and foundationally is a, is a, is a bursting feeling in us. It ought to be. There's nothing worse than a dry lecture about how you love someone. <laughs> That's why we love music. That's why music is enchanting because it comes from the notion of chant, song, canticle but all these things touch what's called the ineffable part of us the inexplainable part it's 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 why when i write my annual christmas letter to my kids and i express my love for kathy it always comes up short that words always come up short because there's a feeling of knowing that transcends us and is greater and deeper and higher and wider which is enormously helpful i think correct by the way I think it's biblical, but it also then should always have in us an openness and literally open your hands and your arms wide open to recognize that the feeling of knowing what we know might not be entirely correct. And does does Burton get back to confidence as well? Does he does he make that connection, or is that more no? He we made that connection. He yeah, doesn't. His point would be uh, so for um, his point would be that we actually don't often know what we know because you know. I'll give you a word. This has helped me. Um, when I came to faith, um, uh, I, I won't mention the family members, but I, you know, but one of, a large influence has always been my father. My father, in so many words, let it be known that that was pretty disappointing to him. And um, and he was a Phi Beta Kappa, PhD, University of Michigan. By the way, listeners, I got none of his DNA. <laughs> and uh, but you know, a lot of times my uh, what I've been plagued often by is. This, uh, I want to prove I'm right to him, that I'm not a dodo, that coming to Jesus wasn't stupid. Hmm. Let's see, that the feeling of knowing what, I, what predominates my feeling is being right, which is idolatry. But then that can take, and you can feel that you're entirely rational in this thing, 
and the dad is on your side and Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and yada, yada, yada. But that's not what the, that's not what the conversation is about. The conversation is about is that I want you to recognize I'm right. And I find that, that um, you know, and so if this is true of all of us, I have found that as I've, in my own, as I've tried to follow Jesus, I've found that there are the, all these hidden layers in Scripture that continue to stumble upon them like treasure in a field to which you go and sell everything you have to uncover them and you learn more and more, particularly in my case, has been the church fathers, that I'm always just, I'm saddened by the number of Christians I know who just feel like there's no way that's correct. There's no way. Because it doesn't fit their feeling of knowing. Hmm. It is a it is an unconscious, so I, I'm not faulting them. It's an unconscious, Burton's point is an, an unconscious uh, feeling that precedes the data. By the way, he uses a wonderful example because he talks about how fast the brain works. But the brain cannot work fast enough to follow the trajectory of a baseball. You, your brain also guesses. It has a feeling of knowing what this pitch is going to be and acts on it. Long before, you know, nanoseconds before rational thought catches up. So you see that with the, a player who's been, quote, fooled by a pitch and tries at the last second to check the swing. You have that awkwardness to it. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Hmm. It's just, I think, I just find it fascinating. Bad, and know this book is going to be so interesting to talk about. I've forgotten a lot. <laughs> he says, reason, more often than not, is a manipulation of words and symbols to fit what we call as our frame. And we end up with, quote, private islands, end quote, of perception and thinking, private islands. And so we think it works this way. He says there's an apparent cause and effect temporal sequence. That's important. If cause and effect temporal sequence, this made me think of the train diagram in the crew booklet. First the thought, then the assessment of the thought, and then the feeling of correctness. You know, is this, does this feel right or not? It's what gives the feeling of knowing its authority. Any other sequence wouldn't make sense and would strip the feeling of knowing of any practical value. So we think that our feeling of knowing is a result of conscious reasoning, but that's not the way it works. It's what precedes rational thought. And, and so frankly, Put my cards on the table here. I think it accounts for uh, the great uh, schisms in, in church history, and I think it accounts for the uh, millions of uh, splinters since the Enlightenment of the last 500 years. Um, it's actually why Ian McGilchrist would define the last 500 years in Western history as a slide into the territory of the left hemisphere. Because the left hemisphere is more driven to getting final answers, mm -hmm. correctness, and doesn't like uh, mystery 
the mystery of being, for example. Um, this is what I believe about the church, but it could be wrong, or it could be missing some of it, or it could, this could be incomplete. I think it accords with the Apostle Paul's notion that we only know in part in this life. In eternity, we will know fully as we are known fully. That's, that's relational. That's feeling. That is reference to as Christ completely, fully indwells us. We fully indwell the truth. And until then, we know in part, and if we know in part, a reasonable person would say, well, if it's possible to know more of what I only know in part, I sure do. Because knowing, John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing Jesus. And as we've talked about before, knowing in the Gospel of John draws its meaning from Genesis, Adam knew Eve. Because Genesis and John parallel one another. Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John, Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, knowing the Word became flesh. That is marital union Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve, nuptial union. This whole notion of knowing Jesus comes back to we know him in part. Wouldn't we, shouldn't we, oughtn't we, to want to know him more fully, deeply, widely, as much as is possible in this life? I know it sounded like it turned into a sermon, didn't it? <laughs> but a good connection. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's where I've appreciated some of these conversations we've been having because it's also helpful just merely to hear how you read a book that is completely not about faith and you're able to see how it connects and you're able to see the the seamlessness, the what what the author is onto that may not even be aware he's onto, um, that our faith, I think, reinforces certain aspects of, of the faith, which is very, uh, very profound and enjoyable I, to hear. I think so. I, well, I appreciate that. I, I, do, I do think for our four listeners, I think we are up to four, by the way, Pat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> High five over the internet. Um, <laughs> that, uh, so what a, a good friend of ours, uh, who lives in another state, who's your, your age, Pat, would say the further he goes into it as a Christian, uh, the more the, the smaller his world gets in terms of his friends. Because uh, I'll quote here from uh, Burden The feeling of knowing, comma, the reward for both proven and unproven thoughts, comma, is learning's best friend and mental flexibility's worst enemy. Hmm. 
see my friend who we actually both know him and he lives in another state he has mental flexibility he's not reciting lines he learned at a church camp when he was 18. now those those things he learned were good he learned them in part but as he is faith has gone wider and higher and deeper those whose faith is built on certainty and are resistant to going higher and wider and deeper are threatened maybe too strong a word but they are unsettled would be the better word and in and it is difficult to live in the western world with an unsettled faith because we went through a system that settled all the answers so we could go out and make money or get a job but i'm still drawn back to that ucla survey it's been done every year in 1969 the first year they did it, the majority of students going to college were trying to acquire a meaningful philosophy of life and that number percentage has dipped dramatically every year and what's now number one is to make money well if you make money you want to make money you're going to be more drawn to be certain you know how to go out and make some money make lots of money but you're not going to be particularly drawn to a meaningful philosophy of life that even makes sense of why do you want to make so much money why do you do you draw an unconscious sense of now i'm set now we can relax now we can start to enjoy life so you'll never read a story or hear a story about someone building a big barn and stuffing it full so that they're quote set for life comma and jesus saying you fool you'll hear that sermon and go oh yeah he must be talking about someone else that's the power in this book on being certain Robert Burton, feeling when you're right, even when you're not, I think it's worth your read.